Welcome to Truth Transistor Radio. This is the most awesomest podcast of all time. I'm your host, Rob Hendrick. This podcast is brought to you by Proverbs 1618. Alright, welcome to another episode of Truth Transistor Radio. This is episode 39. I'm not going to say much before we get into it. Uh, This is mainly going to be audio. The last one was mostly me reading uh, scripture verses. Uh, This one's going to be Mystery Babylon Revealed? (laughs) I have to put that question mark there because I'm not totally sure this is right. This is just kind of where I'm leaning based upon the scriptures that I read in the last episode and some of these facts that we're going to discuss. Um, I'm mainly taking some audio out of two different YouTube uh, playlists. Uh, The first one is a playlist from a channel called, uh, I believe it's called Bible Prophecy Talk. And the, it's, it's on a guy's a guy named Chris White who did a series on Mystery Babylon and who he thinks it is. And he also thinks that it is uh, eschatological or end times Israel. And I heard this originally maybe five years ago, I'm guessing. And I thought it was interesting. Excuse me. <laughs> I thought it was interesting, but I didn't buy it. Uh, I wasn't totally sold on it. Um Because I was still leaning towards all the mystery religions, which I still do. But like I said, I think, biblically speaking, based on that, the mother of them is Kabbalah, is is where I'm at right now. So now I'm thinking that he has something here. So we're going to listen to that one first. And I may stop it from time to time if I have any commentary to add And by the way, this is edited to what I think is essential uh, information, Um, but I will leave a link to the playlist where you can find it below. This will be a multi-week study on Revelation chapter 17 through 18, which is widely considered to be some of the most difficult chapters in the book of Revelation. I hope that you will make an effort to go through the entire study, which is available in multiple formats, such as video, mp3, or text, all available at the website versebyversebibleteaching.com. So why do such an in-depth study on this particular issue? In addition to the study of the woman that rides the beast, or Mystery Babylon, we will also be studying in depth the beast itself, which is widely considered to be the Antichrist. This section of scripture offers so many opportunities to study other events in prophecy, such as Daniel and the timing of the events in the book of Revelation, and therefore it's a great way to study a lot of different concepts in prophecy at the same time. There's also a lot of confusion about the identity of Mystery Babylon, and some of those interpretations not only lead to bad doctrine, but it puts the church in danger, I believe, of being deceived in the end times. It's also important to study prophecy in general because a major portion of the Bible consists of prophecy. Thus, if we neglect it, we are neglecting a major portion of the Bible. The scriptures cannot be rightly understood or unfolded if the prophetic sections are neglected. 
Even among dedicated Bible scholars and teachers, there is a huge variety of views about the identity of Mystery Babylon. Yet the angel in Revelation 17:18 actually tells John what it is that he's just seen. And the angel tells John that it is a city. It says, And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. It is referred to as a city eight times in Revelation, and all the things that happen to it seem to be talking about a literal city. For instance, the city is burned down, and smoke can be seen from the nearby sea. All this and many other factors cause most Bible scholars to believe that it is talking about a literal city. There are many candidates that are proposed for the identity of this city by Bible scholars. Some of them include Rome or Vatican City. Many early reformers saw it as Rome, as well as, somewhat ironically, the Catholic Church teaches that it is Rome as well, in their New American Bible Commentary on the Vatican website although it should be said that they are referring to ancient pagan Rome, where the reformers would say that it was the Rome of the Catholic Church's day. The actual city of Babylon in Iraq is suggested by some. They say that it would be rebuilt in the future in this scenario. And we will look in depth at this possibility as well as these other possibilities in our study. Another proposal is Mecca, or other Arab cities have been proposed. This view has been especially popular very recently. Also, the city of Jerusalem is proposed. This is the earliest view on Mystery Babylon, and it is also held by the widest variety of different Christian groups. And then people also propose New York, and really a long list of other less popular candidates. There are also some very popular viewpoints that take the Bible as speaking metaphorically or allegorically here. They say that it's not really a city, but symbolic of something else. Some of these views include that it is a world pagan religious system or a world financial system, or both. There is no reason that there should be this much confusion. I've counted the characteristics given to Mystery Babylon, and in the three chapters that deal with her, over 90 characteristics are mentioned. That's an astonishing amount of detail given for Mystery Babylon, and in this study I will show that there is explicit biblical evidence for most of, if not all, of these 90 characteristics. There is no need to guess, because the Bible has made sure that we can know for certain simply by comparing Scripture with other Scripture. I'm sure that you will agree that the answer to this age-old question of the identity of Mystery Babylon is found within the pages of Scripture. Before I go any further, I'm going to tell you who I think Scripture teaches that Mystery Babylon is. When I first heard this theory proposed, I said, it couldn't be. But I hope you will see just as I did, if you give me just a few minutes, that there's no one else it can be. It is the eschatological city of Jerusalem. Notice I chose my words very carefully in how I described it. In other words, it is the future Jerusalem of the end times, where according to Daniel 11.45, the Antichrist sets up his end-times world government and end-times world religion headquarters. The city and its inhabitants will promote the Antichrist as the one true God, thereby committing the ultimate abomination, the ultimate harlotry. But even worse, they also promote him and entice the world to follow them in their worship of the man of sin. 
We know that the Antichrist will choose Jerusalem as the place to declare himself to be God in 2 Thessalonians 2.4, Matthew 24.15, Daniel 11.31-32, and we know that the greatest religious killing of all time will happen in the city of Jerusalem, according to Matthew 24.15-21. So often we look at the woman and try to define her in terms of what we have already seen in history, as opposed to what scripture says we will see in the future. That is the primary reason why people missed this, I think, because, as we will see, it is not because of lack of explicit biblical support. For instance, Revelation 18.24 says, And in her, speaking of Mystery Babylon, was found the blood of prophets. Have you ever known any cities to kill the prophets in scripture or in history? Actually, we don't even have to speculate. As Jesus says, it was impossible for a prophet to be killed anywhere except Jerusalem. In Luke 13:31 through 34 it says, The same day there came certain of the Pharisees, saying unto him, Get thee out, and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. And he said unto them, Go ye, and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out devils, and I do cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. So, the Pharisees are saying, get out of here or Herod's going to kill you. And he's basically saying, look, I have to stay in town because all the prophets are killed in Jerusalem. And then Luke quotes this famous line, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often I would have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not. This is repeated by the Lord in other places as well. For instance, in another place, he tells them that their fathers killed the prophets, and they hypocritically built their tombs. He names Zechariah as an example, which he says was killed near the temple. He also says that they will be held accountable and judged for this blood on their hands. If the blood of the prophets is found in the mystery Babylonian city, it is strong evidence in favor of it being Jerusalem. Jerusalem is specifically called a harlot hundreds of times in scripture, and in the very same context, always spiritual harlotry, following false gods, and because of their killing prophets, etc. Just a small sampling of this is in Isaiah 1.21, where it says, How has the faithful city become a harlot? It was full of judgment, righteousness lodged in it, but now murders. Or in Ezekiel chapter 16, which is entirely about this subject, it starts out, Again the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. And he spends the whole chapter saying things like, But thou didst trust in thine own beauty, and playedest the harlot because of thy renown, and poredest out thy fornications, and every one that passed by, his it was. And of thy garments thou didst take, and decadest the high places with diverse colors, and playedest the harlot thereupon. The like things shall not come, neither shall it be so. Jerusalem is constantly warned in scripture that if they do not turn from their harlotries, they will be judged. And as we go through Revelation 17 and 18, we will find that the exact judgments Mystery Babylon gets are the exact same ones promised to Jerusalem because of their spiritual harlotry. Here's one example from Ezekiel 16:40-43. They shall also bring up a company against thee, and they shall stone thee with stones, and thrust thee through with their swords, and they shall burn thine houses with fire, and execute judgments upon thee in the sight of many women. And I will cause thee to cease from playing the harlot, and thou also shalt give no hire any more. Therefore I also will recompense thy way upon thine head, saith the Lord God, and thou shalt not commit this lewdness above all thine abominations. Behold, 
Everyone that uses Proverbs shall use this proverb against thee, saying, As is the mother, so is her daughter. This idea here that Jerusalem is a harlot that has children or inhabitants that are harlots too is what is meant when Revelation says that the woman is the mother of harlots. The harlots are the inhabitants and Jerusalem is the mother. I think that a lot of the confusion is that commentators want to stick the word all in there as in the mother of all harlots as if it was talking about the source of all bad things from the history of the world. But that's not what the text says Mystery Babylon is. It simply says that the city is the mother of harlots. Those harlots here are the inhabitants of the city. When Jesus reiterates this prophecy, he uses the same language. In Luke 23, 28-30 it says, But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming, in the which they shall say, Blessed are the barren for the wombs that have never bare, and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. This view of a futuristic Jerusalem, of the Antichrist's reign, being Mystery Babylon, is not my view alone. I am standing firmly on the shoulders of giants. I heard this view first from a great Bible scholar named Charles Cooper, but I was pleasantly surprised to find that this view is the earliest view recorded of the Church Fathers that I know of. There was a writer named Hippolytus, and he produced the earliest known commentary on the book of Revelation. He was probably the most important theologian of the 200s. And this was an important time because the Revelation was written very late, so it took a long time for it to be circulated. And as a result, we don't find many commentaries on the book of Revelation until about Hippolytus' time. But the problem is, is that the way that people interpreted the Bible, the hermeneutic of the early church, was about to change. In the 300s, about the time that the Catholic Church began, people started interpreting the Bible more allegorically, as opposed to a more literal or face-value approach. As a result, there is a very short window of time where we can hear the views of a premillennial and futurist church father on the book of Revelation. And this is what Hippolytus had to say. By the unrighteous judge who fears not God, neither regards man, he means without doubt Antichrist, as he is a son of the devil and a vessel for Satan. For when he has the power, he will begin to exalt himself against God, neither in truth fearing God, nor regarding the Son of God, who is the judge of all. And, in saying that there was a widow in the city, he refers to Jerusalem itself, which is a widow indeed. Forsaken of her perfect heavenly spouse God, she calls him her adversary and not her savior, for she does not understand that which was said by the prophet Jeremiah, quote, because they observe not the truth, a spirit of error shall speak then to this people and to Jerusalem. He says this in Treaties on Christ and the Antichrist. It is also worth noting that Hippolytus was a student of Irenaeus, who was a student of Polycarp, who was a student of John the Apostle, the guy who wrote the book of Revelation. So I hope during this verse-by-verse -verse study you will be challenged as much as I was in my interpretation of Mystery Babylon. I used to think that the woman was Rome or the Vatican, and when we get to the verses about the seven mountains, you will see why I think that this interpretation held by so many is grammatically and contextually impossible. I also used to think that it was referencing an allegorical kind of amalgamation of all the world's occult religions or financial evil. And you'll see that that view requires a deliberate departure from the plain and simple meaning of the text. It also goes against the angel's own interpretation of this woman.
It also tries to force that word all into phrases like mother of abominations and mother of harlots. I've actually seen commentaries do this. They insert the word all into the text, saying instead mother of all harlots or mother of all abominations. It's just not there. This imaginary all makes people think that they have to make Mystery Babylon account for all the world's evil, past, present, and future. So they go looking in the past or in the present for the most evil thing that they can think of. And that's pretty much how they come up with their interpretation of Mystery Babylon. Whatever the most evil thing is in their paradigm is what she will be to them. It is not a coincidence, therefore, that all the books about Mystery Babylon being Islam showed up after 9-11. But that is no way to interpret the Bible. The strength of verse-by-verse study is its thoroughness. And this will take several weeks to go through the study, but I ask you to stay with me. It will give an opportunity to teach some of the most complicated aspects of the Antichrist, as well as the city that he chooses to set up shop in. After this study, I think that you will understand the book of Revelation better than you ever have. Revelation 17 verse 1 says, And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. And this first line connects us back to the previous chapter, chapter 16, where the seven bowls were being poured out. The seventh bowl is the judgment of Mystery Babylon, the very thing in which we will be studying. So let's go back and read that passage in Revelation chapter 16 first. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. As so often is the case in the book of Revelation, it will now, back in our chapter, chapter 17, sort of zoom in and take a closer look at this great city that has just been judged. This is the pattern seen very often in the book of Revelation and scripture in general. For instance, in Revelation 13, it breaks from the chronological narrative to zoom in on the character of the Antichrist and false prophet. The same thing happens in chapter 7, where the chronology of the seals breaks to tell us more about the 144,000 and the great multitude, or in chapter 11, when it zooms in to tell you the details of the two witnesses. Here is no different. After telling us of the destruction of the great city, it will now zoom in to give us more details about its character. Those details will last two chapters and will be the focus of our study. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me. This is one of the seven angels in charge of the seven vials or seven bowls, depending on which translation you're reading. We are not told which angel specifically it is. But, in any case, it takes John aside and will begin to show him more details about the judgment of the great whore. It says here that she sitteth on many waters. This is not left for us to guess its meaning, as the angel will later tell us what this phrase means. In Revelation 17:15, it says, And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the whore sitteth, 
are peoples, multitudes, and nations, and tongues. When we combine this verse with verse 18, which says, And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth, we see that this is a city that might be the center of a world empire of some kind. It will be the chief city in that empire or system. It is the seat of authority of the world government and religious system. We will also see later on that the term great city is specifically identified as Jerusalem by John. This would be consistent with Daniel 11.45, where speaking of the Antichrist it says, And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Next verse, Revelation 17.2 says, With whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. RevelationCommentary.org says of this first phrase, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, that it is fulfilling John's commission to prophesy against kings given in Revelation 10, verse 11. So what is this fornication? It's actually a really important point to figure out what the nature of this fornication being committed is. Revelation 19.2 says that the great harlot corrupts the earth with her fornication. That word corrupt there in the Greek means to cause the moral ruin of somebody. The terms like harlot, whore, fornication are used very frequently in the Old Testament. And in only a minority of the cases is it referring to actual sexual harlotry or fornication. In a vast majority of the cases, it is used to describe the worshipping of false gods, especially in reference to Israel. Even in the famous story of Hosea the prophet, where Hosea was told to marry an actual prostitute, this was intended to be a symbol of God's relationship with Israel, who commits spiritual prostitution by worshipping other gods. Hosea 3 verse 1 explains, Then the Lord said to me, Go again and love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. Spiritual harlotry is one of the most attested to symbols in scripture. When God is referring to harlotry or fornication, and it's obviously not one of the literal references, he makes it clear that it is spiritual harlotry achieved by the worshiping of false gods. One example that illustrates this well is in Ezekiel 16, 35 and 36, where it says, Wherefore, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God, Because thy filthiness was poured out, and thy nakedness discovered through thy whoredoms, with thy lovers, and with all the idols of thy abominations, and by the blood of thy children which thou didst give unto them. Here it is speaking of the practice of Israel sacrificing their children to the god Moloch, as well as the worship of idols of false gods. Also in Jeremiah 3, verse 6, we find a good example. It says, The Lord said also unto me in the days of Josiah the king, Hast thou seen that which backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree, and there hath played the harlot. Here again we see harlotry made synonymous with the worship of false gods. The high places term is referring to the altars that would be made to false gods, and the, quote, under the green tree was also a common place of false worship. This combination of terms is actually referring back to Deuteronomy 12, verse 2, where it says, Ye shall utterly destroy all the places wherein the nations which ye shall possess served their gods upon the high mountains and upon the hills and under every green tree. So if this is the correct view of this fornication, and I think that we will see as we progress that it is, 
then the kings of the earth are both committing fornication with her and drunk off of her fornications. They are drawn in by her own infatuation and worship of the beast. This, I believe, is best understood as the city of Jerusalem promoting the Antichrist, not just as their Messiah, but as God himself. They will be instrumental in the promotion of the worship of the Antichrist to the world. We see that the world during the reign of Antichrist will do religious service to him, bringing gifts from every nation to worship him with. The world will be enticed to fully worshiping the Antichrist by the great city and its inhabitants. So you can see what it means here. She herself is committing this fornication, and the world is made drunk by it, and they themselves also commit the same fornication. The next verse, Revelation 17, verse 3, says, So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. So this first part, John is, quote, carried away by the spirit. So he's still being divinely directed in this vision. The wilderness here does not have the definite article the, T-H-E, in the Greek. It's often better rendered a wilderness. So here we are introduced to another crucial character in this unholy drama, and it is the scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. This is the exact same beast that we saw in Revelation 13, which is almost universally agreed to be a description of the Antichrist. So let's jump back to Revelation 13, verse 1, and it says this, And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. It is important to understand this basic symbolism. Here the great city is riding the Antichrist, this does not mean that she is in any way in control of the Antichrist, though. We know this because we see that later on in Revelation 17, verse 16, that the Antichrist actually turns on her and destroys her, and in fact, hates her. She, however, believes that she has found a true husband and her king in the beast. Revelation 18, verse 7b says, For she saith in her heart, I sit a queen, and am no widow, and shall see no sorrow. But sadly, she is mistaken, and it says that she will be utterly destroyed by the one she calls her king and her husband. This full of names of blasphemy is an important description of the Antichrist, and is used in various places in Scripture. Notably in Daniel eleven thirty-six and 37, where it says, And the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak marvelous things against the God of gods, and shall prosper, till the indignation be accomplished. For that that is determined shall be done, neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. And in Second Thessalonians 2.4 it says, Who opposes and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he... As God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now we're going to speak more in depth of these seven heads and ten horns when we discuss verses 9 and 10. But I believe that they are speaking of the different occasions in history in which the spirit of Antichrist has manifested itself in the form of kings. John, as we will see, says of these heads, They are also seven kings, 
five of whom have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain only a little while. One of the heads, I believe the seventh one, the one that John says was yet to come, will be the Antichrist, who will receive a mortal wound and yet live. Back in Revelation 13, when John is talking about this seven-headed beast, he says the following, And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. The beast that she rides is the spirit of Antichrist, that, in the time of writing of this book, had already manifested itself in the form of kings six times in history, one of them, the last head, being yet future. We are also told in Revelation 13 that one of these heads, I believe the one yet to come, for reasons we will discuss later, will be mortally wounded and will seem to come back to life. This is the beast that she worships instead of the true God. Okay, so I just wanted to first say that the website that he gave, I went to it and I don't think that's his anymore, his domain. So, uh... The, the link I'm going to leave for you is a YouTube channel called, uh, what is it called here? I just had it. I think I said it earlier, but it is called Bible Prophecy Talk. And there are, let me see, one, two, three, four, five, eight parts, eight videos. That, that was the first one. I really didn't edit anything. It was perfect time timing for the first half of this uh, episode. So I just left it pretty much as is. I cut out the very end where he was promoting his website again. But um, yeah, check that out for more information. <clears throat> but I think this, he does a very good job of showing scripturally why it is end times Jerusalem. Next one, I know I'm going to, is going to be edited because it's like a two hour, the first video is like a two-hour video, but the series, the uh, channel, uh, it's from a YouTube channel called uh, Bride Ministries International, and it's, the series is called Exposing Kabbalah, and everything I'm taking from is from part one. So uh, the video is like an hour and 16 minutes long, and I'm editing it down to about 30 minutes or, or so. I don't remember what I edited it down to because I've already edited this down for something else. For that, here's the song uh, of the day. Um, it's by Kevin Max and it's called The Secret Circle.
just wants to get you into bed Just take another prisoner out of sand Oh yeah, just tell another Once again, that's Kevin Max, The Secret Circle. So if you like his music, look him up. Um, okay, so this next uh, uh, audio is from Bride, in Bride International Ministries, I believe that's what they're called. Yes, Bride Ministry. No, sorry, Bride Ministries International is the YouTube channel. And. Uh, and you're going to hear an edit, but I will leave a link for the entire playlist. So check that out. Now this is more about Kabbalah and how Kabbalah has influenced other secret societies. And so this was another part of what has convinced me of this view on Mystery Babylon. Well, now we are here. And this week we are going to be beginning a series called Exposing Kabbalah. Exposing Kabbalah. Because what you're going to learn is that Kabbalah is not good. <laughs> okay? <laughs> this is going to be a tough series. It's going to be tough, right? It's going to step on toes. It's going to make people upset. I will probably get accused of one or two things. Not nice words. Because this message is going to offend people at the core of certain beliefs that they've assumed are of God, and they're not. As a matter of fact, many times we don't know what the source is of all of the things that we hold fast to. Like, wh where did that, did that belief really come from? 
right? And, and what we don't realize is how much of the body of Christ has been infiltrated by Kabbalah. As a matter of fact, we don't even know what it is. Some of us do. Most of us don't. Most of us don't. And it has become ever so clear to me that it is time for this thing to be explained and exposed. Now, I'm going to start with a passage of scripture because we are at church. This is what it says. Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. That's not good. Paul <laughs> doesn't want you to put up with that stuff. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. Right. So what we do not want to do is we do not want to put up with different things, a different Jesus, a different gospel. Now, why are we talking about Kabbalah? And exposing Kabbalah. Answer. Because it's influencing a whole lot of streams in the body of Christ right now. And we'll get to those later. Um, but what Kabbalah is, at its core, is the ancient so-called Jewish tradition of mystical interpretation of the Bible. First transmitted orally and using esoteric methods. Kabbalah is an esoteric method, discipline, and school of thought that is said to originate in Judaism. Okay. Now, having said that, I am going to tell you this. We are going to learn why Kabbalah, at its core, is a doctrine of demons and a revealing of the government of Lucifer. We're also going to learn why it is a programming template for survivors of satanic ritual abuse. And we're going to even look at how the Kabbalah narrative of the end times has profoundly affected international politics and even the policy of the church. Are you ready for this? <laughs> so th this has been something that has been on my radar now for years. And I'll tell you, my introduction to Kabbalah and the Kabbalah tree actually came by way of working with survivors. What do I know about Jewish mysticism? I don't care about what rabbis teach, right? I, as a matter of fact, probably like many of you, I think, or at least I used to think, that 
Jewish rabbis just teach the Old Testament? As a matter of fact, I want to ask a question here, just in the chat, right, here in Zoom. How many people here assume that Judaism is simply the study of the Torah and the rest of the Old Testament? People do believe that. That it's not really anything more than that. That our Jewish friends are just teaching the Old Testament, right? And, and so they don't get the New Testament and they don't get Jesus. But if we just explain that Yeshua is the Messiah and show them in the scriptures how he fulfills hundreds of messianic prophecies, they should just get it. Like, why, are, why is anyone confused? The truth is, Judaism is not that simple. <laughs> not at all. They, 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 the Judaism is not solely based on Torah and Old Testament. Okay? It's not. It's a very different religion. And it has evolved. What we call Judaism today is not Judaism of 2,500 years ago. It's not not the same at all. It's very different. And I don't know that even th they necessarily know that, but some do, and especially the ones that are initiated. <laughs> now, back to me. I don't know anything about Kabbalah. All I know is that I'm working with survivors, and eventually I begin to run into something. And I, and I first ran into this thing with a certain person that was trying to explain to me that their heart was in some kind of a death portal. And I was trying to take their heart out of the death portal, right? <laughs> Good Christian deliverance, right? Problem, problem solved. Like, you know, you have demonic bondage, Jesus will fix it. Well, guess what? I absolutely failed. Couldn't get the breakthrough for anything. I'm like, how do I get the heart out of the death portal? How do I desynchronize this thing? I tried everything. Living water, angels, the name of Jesus, armies of heaven, blood of Jesus, oil of anointing, praying loud, praying soft, praying louder even louder yell like every had a well you know freedom from principalities freedom nothing worked this is real though this really happens and and it was like okay so you know we try to work out mechanics and we get a piece here and a piece there so it took me years to finally figure this whole thing out and eventually we started getting the breakthroughs on the so-called template guess what it was the Kabbalah tree <laughs> the Kabbalah tree, right? And so I had become aware that programming was anchored against the Kabbalah. And we're going to, because I'm going to show you some pictures and we're going to, you know, talk about this. But um, that's where I really knew, like, this is a big problem. The Kabbalah tree is a big problem. And, um, but even when I began to understand the significance of the Kabbalah tree relative to programming and even its cosmic implications, guess what I didn't understand? That it was 
literally a foundation stone of Jewish mysticism because I hadn't studied Jewish mysticism. So I don't know the connection. Now we're going to take a journey because this stuff is so dark and so scary. And, and, and this is what I realized. The more I search out Kabbalah, and, and, and it's from the angle of how can I help people get healing and deliverance in Jesus' name, right? The more I search out this belief system, the more I find it at the center of global conspiracy. <laughs> so let's talk about it, right? Break it down piece by piece, right? I already gave you a definition of Kabbalah. Now, it is not possible to discuss Kabbalah apart from a conversation on what is called Judaism or simply Jewish doctrine. Again, some Christians think that Judaism is simply a study of the Old Testament. But it is not that simple. Jewish doctrine regarding the Old Testament comes from two primary sources. One of those sources is the Babylonian Talmud. And the Babylonian Talmud, and if you're make, taking notes, write this down. It is a commentary on the Mishnah. What's the Mishnah? The Mishnah is the first major written collection of Jewish oral traditions known as the Oral Torah. It is also the first major work of rabbinic literature. So when it comes to Jewish doctrine, this oral Torah is considered by some to be as divinely inspired as the Old Testament itself, which means when we're going to learn what we believe, we're going to go to the Talmud, not the Old Testament. This is like being a Christian and saying, I'm going to learn my Christian doctrine from the Book of Mormon, okay? It, it's the oral Torah. It's not what God gave Moses on Mount Sinai. We have to understand that. And the Talmud is the commentary on the Mishnah, okay? So this is a big, big cornerstone in Judaism. All right, next. This Talmud has so much commentary and so many arguments they actually call it the Sea of Talmud. Now, the second major source of Jewish doctrine in Judaism comes from Kabbalah, which in itself means to receive. But Kabbalah, it... it, it um, is a collection of Jewish esoteric books whose primary texts include Zohar, otherwise known as the Book of Splendor, Sefer Yetzirah, otherwise known as the Book of Formation, the Book of Mysteries. <laughs> Check this out. The Gate of Reincarnations. That's actually one of the books in Kabbalah. The Gate of Reincarnations. Why? 
because reincarnation is a doctrine of Kabbalah. Wonder why? Um, also, a book known as Three Enoch, which is not to be confused with One Enoch. One Enoch is a text in the Pseudopigrapha that confirms many of the statements about the pre-flood world in Genesis while adding a whole lot of detail. Three Enoch is completely different. When you add all this stuff up, Zohar, Sefer Yetzirah, Book of Mysteries, Gate of Reincarnations, Three Enoch, you know, um, one may want to think, oh, maybe that's just, you know, an infiltration of Judaism. It's probably easily separated from genuine Judaism, which is just a study of the Old Testament and a, a glance at the Mishnah from time to time. Well, in, in their own language, that, that's, that's a negative. As a matter of fact, we're going to take a look now at um, a slide that I have for you. All right. So I went on Kabad.org to consider the situation. And on Kabad.org, I read, the Kabbalists called Jewish mysticism the Pardis, meaning the garden. We'll talk about that in a minute. If you see a beautiful flower in a garden, you may have the urge to pick it up and take it home to enjoy its beauty, but a flower won't last long out of its natural habitat. Once it is disconnected from its life force, it will very quickly wither and die. Taking Kabbalah out of its Jewish context and removing it from Jewish practice is like picking a flower from a garden. It looks beautiful and smells nice for a while, but soon it starts to wither, rot, and stink. Kabbalah is a living, breathing spirituality that is nourished by the rich soil of Jewish wisdom and practice. But those who are calling it a separate religion, for the obvious reason of gaining a wider audience, are turning something deep and holy into just another passing fad. It looks good, creates a stir, but won't last. While one can taste the teachings of Kabbalah, even without being particularly observant of Judaism, you can't detach it from its source. Kabbalah is the heart of Judaism. Okay, so now you know I'm not making this up. Kabbalah is central to Judaism as it exists in the world today. Book of Formation. Gate of Reincarnation. Three Enoch. Central, whether you know it or not. Okay, so we're just breaking it down. I'm going somewhere with all of this. This is, this is very important. Now, I read you that we need to talk a little bit about Pardis. Now, that was quoted in the a little slide I showed you. What is Pardis? It, it is um, spread out to paradise, and it is known as the four levels of interpretation of Old Testament text. It's four levels, right? So Pardis is Peshat, it is Remez, Drash, and Sad. This is the, that Peshat means the surface reading of the text. That is what they consider the most basic and, uh, you know, who cares about that, right? Maybe that's over, over, 
overage, but um, Pashad is the surface. You, then you move down to what they call Ramez, which is what the text is implying beneath the surface. So there's another level of interpretation. Then there is what they call Drash. This is the Midrash and the writings of the sages. So, so you're actually going deeper when you begin to look at what the Jewish sages have written about things. And then they have a fourth level, which they call Sad or secret. Secret, right? What is Sad, the secret? Answer, it's the Kabbalah, right? So the deepest thinking and most spiritual rabbis are going to be initiated into Sad, which is Kabbalah. Get it? That's the deepest part of the study of the religion. So if you're just reading the Old Testament to understand the law and then to apply it to your life, you, you are a very, very basic student of Judaism. I mean, it's like not even, you know. So, so, so the whole goal is to get to Kabbalah, where, where you can begin to understand this thing. Now, moving on. This might sound a little romantic. You may say, oh, well, you know, I don't even understand. I've never read the Zohar. I've never read the Sefer Yitzira. I mean, how, how harmful can this body of text actually be? <laughs> so I'm going to introduce you to some of the most astute students of Kabbalah. Are you ready for this? Who wants to know an astute student of Kabbalah? All right. And we're going to talk about it. The first one I will introduce you to is named Eliphas Levi. <laughs> Eliphas Levi, for those of you that do not know, led the occult revival of the 1800s that revived Satanism and Luciferianism. He wrote many books about ritual magic and how to have contact with demonic spirits. Who wants to take notes from this guy, right? So here he is, Eliphas Levi. <laughs> He was a French occult altar and author and ceremonial magician. He has attempted to translate or transliterate his given name into the Hebrew language. Now, why would he care about translating into the Hebrew language? <laughs> Probably from his studies of Kabbalah, right? So here's some of his stuff, life work. Oh, look at that guy. Baphomet, huh? Yep. You could read all about this guy. He wrote all these highly, highly occult books. The Science of Spirits, the key to the great mysteries. I mean, this guy is really, really dark. And um, he was totally involved in study of Kabbalah. So I will leave you to do your own research, okay? Number two, <laughs> who else is on our list of um, highly influential folks in the area of Kabbalah? McGregor Mathers. Now, McGregor Mathers was one of the three founders of the Order of the Golden Dawn. And he was also a mentor of one of 
my least favorite people, Aleister Crowley. Now, what kind of a student of occult arts does it take to mentor Aleister Crowley, one of the greatest occultists, so-called, of the last century, right? So here he is. Um, oh, goodness gracious. I had, a, I had a window for him up and it disappeared. Uh, we'll, we'll come back to him. I'm, I'm going to share a few other guys. I'll, I'll put his name in here. McGregor Mathers. And this is for all of you that would like to look into him a little bit more. Now, another student of Kabbalah, very famous, Helena P. Blavatsky. Now, for those of you that do not know who she is, Blavatsky's writings garnered the materials of Neoplatonism, Renaissance magic, Kabbalah, and Freemasonry, together with Egyptian and Greco-Roman mythology and religion, joined by Eastern doctrines taken from Buddhism and Adyaita Ven... I don't even know how to pronounce it. Vedanta to present the idea of an ancient wisdom handed down from prehistoric times. That's according to historian Nicholas Goodrick Clark. She believed that the Jews, through books like the collection of Kabbalah, had stolen books of black magic that had previously come from the Chaldeans. She is the one who formed the Theosophical Society with another gentleman. Um, which Alice Bailey was aligned with. And for those of you that don't know about Alice Bailey, she was the one who channeled Dual Kool, an ascended master, established the Lucifer Trust, now known as Lucius Trust, and was the force to deploy the term New Age and also spoke about the coming of the Age of Aquarius. <laughs> Home run hitters, right? So uh, we could take a quick look at her. I'm, I'm telling you, it is not a pretty sight. I want you to take a quick look at this when we talk about the logo for the Theosophical Society. What do you see in this logo of the Theosophical Society? Answer, the same star you see on the flag of the nation state of Israel <laughs> with an onk on the inside of it, a... <laughs> swastika at the top which is an egg which the eternal serpent wraps himself around consuming his own tail which is also a connection to the Ouroboros which then makes a connection to Orion alright what is she trying to tell you So I will leave you all to do your own research. Now, I'm going to talk about a few other heavy hitters. <sighs> A.E. White. Wait, A.E. White wrote occult texts on subjects including divination, esotericism, Rosicrucianism, Freemasonry, 
and ceremonial magic, Kabbalism and alchemy. I want you to think about that. Why would you be writing about Freemasonry, Rosicrucianism, and Kabbalah? Answer. Because Kabbalah is actually central to all of those occult arts. Here's a picture of this guy, A.E. Waite. Um, American British poet, scholarly mystic. He is the co-creator of the wider rate tarot deck. Interesting. He was in an ongoing feud with Aleister Crowley. He also was a co-founder of the Order of the Golden Dawn, or a joiner of the Order of the Golden Dawn, excuse me. Um, and so <laughs> I would um, highly recommend that you uh, do your own research. This guy wrote the book, The Holy Kabbalah, in 1929, eight years after writing his book on ceremonial magic or uh, 18 years and seven years or eight years after writing his book, A New Encyclopedia of Freemasonry. So he was building up. <laughs> this is real talk. This is stuff that we need to know why because you wouldn't you wouldn't you can't begin to believe how much of the belief system of kabbalah and its assertions have moved through different streams of christianity all right next on the list manly p hall now how many people may have heard of that name before in your study of freemasonry right because manly p hall was a very high-ranking Freemason. What is Manly Hall P. writing about? Kabbalah. Kabbalah, Kabbalah, Kabbalah. Here's Manly P. Hall. He is best known for his book, The Secret Teaching of All Ages. Um... He wrote The Lost Keys of Freemasonry. Of course, he was a member of the Rosicrucian Fellowship as well. Bad, bad news. The Secret Teaching of All Ages, an encyclopedic outline of Masonic, Hermetic, Kabbalistic, and Rosicrucian symbolic philosophy. Any questions? Right? I'm just trying to help you to see how deep this goes. Because we, we begin by, Dan DeVos is trying to help survivors to, wow, we're running into this template. It's holding people in bondage. Next thing I know, Jewish mysticism, and now I'm in Alice Bailey, Manly P. Hall, Albert Pike, Eliphas Levi territory. <laughs> What's the thread running through all of it? Kabbalah. Kabbalah.
Kabbalah. So even before I get much deeper into this, I'm sure that many of you would be able to understand my absolute overwhelmingly negative response when I saw some people <laughs> holding a Christian conference called Zohar Illuminated. I, I'm not going to go into that, but you know, I'm, I'm just saying, whoa, what's happening here? Now, here's another one, Albert Pike, author of the book, Morals and Dogma. Morals and Dogma. Um, Albert Pike is an American author, poet, orator, jurist, prominent Freemason. I'm going to share this with you. In his celebrated and controversial guide, this comes from masoncode.com, to the degrees of Scottish Rite Freemasonry, Albert Pike devotes a considerable amount of space to Kabbalah, calling it, among other things, the key of the occult sciences. Reading his account of Kabbalah in the compendious chapter devoted to the esoteric 28th degree, Night of the Sun, there can be no doubt that he was an ardent devotee of sacred geometry, numerology, and gematria. All right. I'm, I'm out there, right? Right now, we're just in fact land. I'm not teaching anything. I'm just reading you stuff. I'm just reading you. So I'm trying to give you some keys. Do your own research. This is the one thing about Kabbalah. It is impossible to research Kabbalah and come to the conclusion that Judaism is a healthy religion. Impossible. You know why? Because the Freemasonry secrets are based on this doctrine. As a matter of fact, many people that are the subjects of victimization through Freemasonry abuse that is ritual-oriented have received rituals based on Kabbalah that are holding them bondage. Well, my grandfather was a 32nd degree Freemason, Daniel, and I can't understand why my life is continually getting trashed. You may have a problem with Kabbalah. Furthermore, in an effort to better understand the Hebrew roots of our faith, well-meaning Christians are turning to Jewish rabbis, many of which are trained in Kabbalah, to get their interpretation of what the Old Testament and Torah really means. Anti-Semitism is a word that anyone who speaks against anything having to do with Zionist Israel, gets labeled with, right? Because if I have any issue with Mossad and some of the criminal activity they're doing around the world, okay, which may actually be implicated in what happened with Epstein just this past week, you're not ready, right? But now I'm an anti-Semitic because I said it. 
or that it's really anti-Semitic to point out that the star that's on Israel's flag is the same star that's on the Theosophical Society emblem <laughs> with an ankh on the inside and an eternal serpent eating its own tail with an egg in its mouth. Going around it. Oh, no, that's anti-Semitic, Dan Duvall. You can't, you can't say that. Anti, let me explain something. Anti-Semitism means hostility or prejudice against Jews. I have no prejudice against Jews at all. If I meet a Jewish man, I will bless him. If God says, give him a hug, I'm going to give him two. Okay. If God says, tell him about Jesus, I'm going to tell him about Jesus. I'm going to have him over my house. We're going to have a meal. I'll buy their kids toys. I'm not anti-Semitic, but I am not pro Rothschild, Zionist, conspiracy, political agenda. All right? Um, and, and, and so as I go through this and I break it down and I say, look, Kabbalah is bad stuff. Don't say I'm an anti-Semitic. I love Jews. And I believe that the fullness of Israel is going to come in at some point according to the book of Romans. I actually believe this stuff. But there is a deep, 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 dark rabbit hole here surrounding Kabbalah that needs to be exposed. And unfortunately, it's at the heart of Judaism as it is practiced in present day. So once again, that is Bride Ministries International. And I will leave um, the entire, a link to the entire playlist on Kabbalah Exposed. So that is pretty much it. Um, I don't have much to add, but uh, I just thought those two playlists were interesting in, in convincing me of what Mystery Babylon is. Um, and of course, the scriptures that I read in the last episode. So um, after this, I think I'm going to go into the Millennium and Gog Magog and uh, the timing of those things so all right thank you all and have a wonderful day this is the most awesomest podcast of all time i'm your host rob Hendrick. this podcast is brought to you by proverbs 16 18. Rob, go for instruction 